0: We record on Turrbal and Yagira country in Mianjin, Brisbane. The Committee for Brisbane acknowledges the First Nations people of the region and their continuing connection to and care of the land, waters and community of that region. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Welcome to Dream Boldly the podcast that brings together the best and brightest minds from Brisbane, Australia, proud host city of the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Our guests will be experienced and well-known Brisbane leaders sharing big ideas to help shape a better city and region.
1: Our guest today is Courtney Stewart, Artistic Director and CEO of La Boite Theatre, Australia's oldest continuously running professional theatre company and a Brisbane cultural institution. It's been a steep climb to the top for Courtney, who took the top job at Le Bois at just 34 and became the first person of colour to lead Le Bois in its almost 100-year history. Here to chat the bitter pill of rejection, shaping the soul of the nation and embracing vulnerability, welcome Courtney.
2: Oh, thanks so much, Adam. I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Now, we will get to the successes in a bit, but it seems only fitting to start with the inciting incident that kicked it all off for you, getting rejected by children's singing group High Five at the (laughs) final audition hurdle. What happened?
2: Oh, so sad. I'm still not quite over it, I think. Yeah, I auditioned for High Five, I think it was back in 2012, and it was like the X Factor. There was like 300 people who had sent in self-tapes from both, I think it was in Australia and New Zealand, and then they whittled the group down to about 50 and brought us all to, you know, this big kind of warehouse in Sydney and we we had just a week of auditions where they would, like, cut the group in half every day. And I was kind of breezing through round after round. I was like, oh, yeah, I've got this. not many Asian people left. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, i like a, a shoo-in. But I was also touring with what was called ArtsLink, used to be the Arts Council school shows that would tour around to, to the different schools in different regions. And so I actually wasn't able to make two of the middle days of auditions. And I think during that time, I started to like slip down, oh. slip down, I think. I, you know, you have to be visible in these you situations. Fell in love with someone more. I think so. <laughs> and I turned up to the final day and they kind of put us into different configurations of the new high fives. So there were like, you know, three different groups of high fives. And, yeah, at the end, I I got the call that I didn't make it and I was, oh, devastated. Who stole
1: your role, do you think?
2: Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I've wiped it from my mind.
1: (laughs) I know we do joke, but High Five was truly a significant influence for you as a young Queenslander. (gasps) I recall an interview you did recently with ABC and you said... That the original High Five band member Kathleen De Leon Jones was your first Asian Australian role model in the media. Yeah, how important was this as a young oh, artist it, growing up? It
2: was. It was pivotal. I think. Um you know, high five was so cool. Like for me, it was like the precursor to S Club 7, really. (laughs) And I just remember seeing Kathleen on screen and just thinking, oh, it's, I I would love to do that because I I grew up as a dancer really. And, you know, I was like, oh, there's an actual job that you can do where you can make a living out of this. And, you know, you get to sing, you get to act, you get to play with these cool puppets. It's like children around, like it's just seemed like the, the best job ever. And, she was part of the group. Like she had a great spot. She had equal screen time. And I was like, oh, this is like the first time I've ever seen anyone who looks like me kind of being treated as like an equal human being. And I just thought that was really cool. And it kind of, yeah, always kept me dreaming about what I could do in in the entertainment space as well.
1: And like many Queenslanders in the entertainment industry, you left Brisbane as a young artist to chase your big break down south. Mm. Was this out of necessity? Was it out of opportunity? Something different? I think a bit of both,
2: really. I think at the time, the conversations around representation, authenticity, diversity, inclusion were at a different point in Brisbane. And I just found that I was getting more auditions in Sydney. And I was involved with one one main stage show, Macbeth, at Queensland Theatre and thought, oh, this is great. Like, I'll I'll get auditions from now and it'll be great. I'll be in more productions there. And the momentum just wasn't around, you know, it wasn't around me at that time. And so I'd just gotten married and my husband Robbie and I were just like, will we renew our lease or will we go down to sydney we made the decision to pack up our life and and drive down to sydney and try and try you know building a life down there and i found that the industry was further along in terms of, you know, people like me being wanted for roles and projects. And so I was like, oh, well, this I'll, I'll go where I'm wanted. I'll go where the opportunities are. And so Sydney was that for me. Almost, almost instantly, I felt like a complete difference being there. But then once I moved down there, all of a sudden I started getting opportunities back in Brisbane, which <laughs> I think is quite, I think that's a common tale for Queenslanders who move out of the state.
1: And but, why do you think that is?
2: Um, I think I think it's important for Queenslanders to spread their wings and to kind of understand themselves. I think you can only really truly understand yourself and what you have to offer when you're not at home. Because when you're at home, you're kind of limited by not only what you think of yourself, but how everyone else has already contextualized you. Like it's really hard for people to continue to update their version of who you are in their head when you've grown up there and they've seen everything you've ever done. Whereas, you know, when you move to a place where no one knows you, that anonymity is really liberating because you can make a fool of yourself because you're like, well, I don't have any friends in this place. I have to go <laughs> home if I, you know, if it doesn't work out. I don't know if it's a confidence or there's like a, a centering or a grounding within yourself that happens when you when you leave home, when you move away. You know, you kind of gather these life experiences that are yours and, you know, you kind of step fully into your own decision-making and your agency because you're not surrounded by, you know, other structures and familiar faces, you're like operating purely out, out of your comfort zone. So you're not, you're not within your comfort zone at all. And so I think um, you just stretch and grow as a person. I think that's only going to be of benefit to you as an mm-hmm. artist.
1: And, and with that anonymity that you describe, was it that, you know, move to Sydney, was it an opportunity for you to reinvent yourself or was it an opportunity for you to discover truly who you were?
2: Both. Again, I think I never really set out to reinvent myself. I I think my purpose really was to try and find where I fit into the industry. But I think in the process of that, there was some sort of metamorphosis that went on where I feel like I was able to blossom into the artist that I am today because of The different opportunities, the different conversations, the different groups of creative people that I came into contact with in Sydney, the different ways that they support art making down there, which is distinct, not better necessarily than what we do in Queensland, but just different.
1: You mentioned that the, I guess, the dialogue, the spotlight on diversity, inclusion, representation was at a very different level. Mm. 10 years ago when mm. when you did make that move. Mm-hmm. You've just clocked over a year at La Boite, yep. which is Australia's oldest continually running professional theatre company, celebrating 100 years in, in 2025. At the time of your appointment as artistic director and CEO, you were the only woman of colour to lead a major non-Indigenous theatre company in Australia mm-hmm. and the first person of colour to lead La Le Boite. It was a big win for the arts industry nationally. How significant was, was that part of the narrative for you personally?
2: Um, I think it kind of brought together everything I had hoped for and everything that I've been pushing for, you know, along with so many others in the industry around opening doors for people who kind of historically haven't had a seat at the table. La Boite has meant so much to me. I think what's so incredible about the company is that it means so much to everyone. I think you'd be hard pressed to find some, you know, an artist in Brisbane who hadn't had some kind of encounter or interaction or relationship with La Boite. And so again, that made my appointment felt even more honored, knowing that this company meant so much. You know, there was so um, you know, much vested interest in and around the appointment. For me. I think it's a pretty incredible milestone for Queensland to be leaders in that field. Now, where we do have our second tier theatre company being run by a woman of color that isn't happening in other states. Dare I say the tables may have turned around where the conversation is being led from, you know, I think that's I think that's really exciting. Um, I think it's a really exciting time to be an artist in Queensland. I think it's a really exciting time to be in the arts in general and yeah, I'm excited to see what this, see, seeing how this door that's open for me has a ripple effect um, throughout the rest of the industry and seeing what other doors can remain open for others to come in as well. Mm.
1: Mm. And you mentioned how far the conversation has come mm. in, in seemingly a, a short amount of time. Have we still got some way to go?
2: Oh, of course. I think I don't know. I I think that you'll always want to be able to improve things and you'll always be wanting to to push for for more change. But I think it is really important to stay encouraged and to recognise the wins that have been made. Yeah, I really think it's in the last maybe five to seven years that we've seen a bit of a watershed moment in the industry. And I'm speaking particularly from a, you know, an Asian-Australian artistic lens. The organisation Contemporary Asian Australian Performance and their Lotus initiative really started to set things in motion because out of that initiative came plays like Single Asian Female, came writers like Merlin Tong, Katrina Irawati Graham. You know, there's a whole host of incredible writers that have gone on to, to take uh, the main stage by storm thanks to that company and thanks to that particular initiative, I
1: think. So. Mm. You mentioned Single Asian Female, which was a huge hit for Brisbane, mm. uh, written by the incredible Michelle Law. That was a show that premiered at La Boite in 2017 and that saw you make your professional main stage debut as an actor. Yes. It really feels like, you know, that was a catapult show for mm. you, had had seasons in Sydney, returned to La Boite. It felt like your career as an actor was was on fire at that point yeah and then you decided that you didn't want to do it anymore <laughs> what what, what I, prompted know. That?
2: I know i i <laughs> I agree. I It's so strange because, yes, I had kind of been like w- wanting to kind of get some momentum and, you know, land a role like that. I mean, it was the most incredible role. I feel so privileged that I got to play May for four, I think it was four years. But yeah, I don't know. I decided to have a baby like almost straight away after that and then, yeah, left acting almost completely. I know it's, it seems really strange, but I really feel like I had kind of come into contact with directing the year before I did Single Asian Female at La Boite and in that moment I was actually kind of chasing those opportunities to improve my acting or to kind of gain insight into the whole process of making theatre because I thought it would make me a more valuable collaborator. And I just remember at the end of that week-long initiative, which was an initiative run at Sydney Theatre Company in collaboration with Contemporary Asian Australian Performance. With the purpose of trying to find the next generation of Asian Australian directors, and then I just remember at the end of the week, I was like, I don't really mind if I ever act again because I feel like these conversations are the ones I want to be a part of. I just was like, this is so exciting to be part of those bigger picture discussions, and I think actually having that release made me a better actor because I wasn't holding on to that dream with every scrap of my being. You know, I I was like, oh. I love this. I love telling stories, but there's other ways that I can be part of this process. And then, yeah, it just kind of all snowballed from there. I think just I actually think the act of letting go a little bit, opened more doors, settled my, I guess, sense of self and, and confidence in what I was doing in a way that I hadn't been able to before potentially, you know, which is always a, a, I, think, I think that people get scared of collaborating with people who seem desperate because you're like, I can't meet All these needs that are coming at me. So I think it's actually really important to try and find to try and like meet those needs within yourself and be more resilient and try and offer a collaborative relationship that isn't so emotionally taxing on the other person.
1: (laughs) We are arguably heading into one of the most exciting decades that Brisbane has experienced to date uh, with the twenty thirty two Olympic Games. How important is it, do you think that? Queensland stories and Queensland storytellers remain at the heart of what is to come as we hurdle towards 2032.
2: I think it's critical. I think, you know, to get the most out of the experience of the tourism that's going to be here during the Olympics, you know, you want to be providing an opportunity for them to understand where they are and the people and the other particular influences that are kind of swirling around the place that they're coming to, you know, spend some time in. I think that's, I think it's really important. I also think it's a a great opportunity for Queenslanders to allow their stories to mean something to people beyond just Queensland. And also, you know, inspire the next generation of, of Queensland creators and storytellers to maintain their strong sense of identity but connect it into a global conversation. I think, you know, I think that the Queenslanders deserve that and we have a really distinct, interesting perspective on things that I think deserves a spot in global conversations.
1: When Brisbane was elected as host city of the Games in 2032, IOC President Thomas Bach said that the IOC encouraged Olympic Games Projects that leave solid legacies for local communities. If you were to project forward to 2033 Mm -hmm. and the year after the Games, when we are there and looking back, what should our legacies be?
2: I have high hopes that we will leave a mark on the global community as providing distinct, unique, world-class artistic experiences acknowledging that we're a city and state teeming with incredible minds and people and um, that there's fertile ground for incredible stories as well, I think. There's a lot of stereotypes that sit around Queenslanders and I think (laughs) whether they're right or wrong, I think um, giving more context to where they come from, I think, and kind of showing you know, revealing ourselves a little bit more. I think Australia as a whole sometimes, I think, and I understand why. You know, being vulnerable is hard. But I think that we, as a nation, there's kind of been a narrative that's been reiterated over and over again: is that you have to have a thick skin. That you know, we don't like to show emotion too much. You know, if you show much too emotion, then you're too sensitive. I think that we find our own feelings a little repulsive at times, and so I I'm excited about allowing the storytellers of this generation to provide another way to be Australian or to be, you know, human beings in this country, Um, Mm. yeah, moving forward.
1: I think there is a sense of, you know, Queenslanders by nature are very laid back, very irreverent. We poke fun at ourselves Mm -hmm. far more readily than we do others. yes, And that can be kind of misconstrued as being perhaps a little... Unsophisticated, or <laughs> but I feel like we we are really coming to own that and mm. be known for that, but in a very different way. It yeah, feels that way.
2: I think it's great not to be too reverential about anything, you know, our stories aren't museum pieces. Like they should be allowed to flex and grow and, you know, be experimental. Um, So you kind of need to not take yourself too seriously to be able to do that. So I think that's a great strength of us as Queenslanders. I, I like that about myself that I'm able to do that. But yeah, I think that, Sometimes when that narrative goes on for too long, it's almost hard to care about anything because you feel like you're going to be judged for not being like that. So there has to be some kind of balance point, I think, to be just a healthy human being.
1: Mm. That's an interesting point that you raise and and is, uh, you know, another... Artist within the the sector locally, I remember a conversation that he and I had where he said it, it's a dangerous time to be making mm. and to be putting things out there because there is such scrutiny over everything. You yes. know, ha- have you thought about everyone? Have you included everyone? Have you represented everyone mm. fairly mm-hmm. and justly and accurately? Do you feel that?
2: No, um, I don't because. I, t- I understand the sentiment actually I like that sentiment is right, but I actually think it comes down to what is your vulnerability appetite, what's your risk appetite? Like, what are those two things and how do they intersect within you as a person? So and maybe it's because I am a woman of color, but like my ability to access my vulnerability, I've got a greater appetite for that. So like I'm okay to make mistakes and I think I'm also okay to say sorry and I'm also okay to like try and learn better and I'm okay to do that in a public way. I think if you don't have strategies to be able to deal with that, then yes, I think it's a very terrifying time to be having an opinion about anything because you can't consider everything all the time because you're at a particular moment, we are all at particular moments on our journey of being a human being and learning all the things that we're going to be able to learn before the day that we die and you're not going to have all those answers right now and so of course your opinions are only going to be half formed or you know not consider everything but it's about do you have an appetite to dig in and do it anyway and learn what you can from the experience knowing that you're going to get a little bit bruised and bumped along the way like I think it's okay.
1: And is there a particular moment in your career where you feel that you you have been a little bruised and bumped? Or, or? Oh,
2: I think all the time. I think all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of one kind of big specific moment. I mean, being chair of the Equity Diversity Committee uh, for the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, I, it was almost daily. Like it's, it's so normal to me to kind of have really difficult conversations. I think I have them daily and to have conversations where it's highly stressful because you're dealing with emotions and you're dealing with people who you or or the process that you've been a part of or you're, you know, stuck in between, people who have hurt each other. But also that's living for me. Like that right there is like, you know, taking life by the horns and like just diving in and just feeling every emotion, having every experience that you can possibly have. And also you can't avoid it unless you are just going to stay at home and not interact with anyone covid <laughs> isolation but it still even happens then like you you just you will you and i think you just have to own the fact that you're going to make mistakes but just know that you know there's always an opportunity to come back from it there's always an opportunity to learn and to make amends um and you just have to kind of be ready to be vulnerable i think
1: that's that high five rejection thick skin coming through it's your me greatest early. <laughs> gift <laughs> I know one of your missions uh, both personally and and in your role at Boite, is to change the world mm-hmm. one play at a time mm-hmm. or one story at a time. Mm. Do you think that art has the potential to do that?
2: I really do. I really do. And I know in our industry we talk about we're not doing brain surgery, we're not saving lives. I disagree. We're not we're not performing brain surgery, but I think we can save lives. I think because I've I've seen it how it's, uh, firsthand how it's affected me like it's not just pure entertainment where I'm like oh I'm a bit bored oh that's nice like yeah that, that art can be that and that's great too but I think all human beings and there's studies to show that even like little kids. The best way to communicate with them is to acknowledge their feelings. That's all any human being wants. It's like a deep need that we have that we don't grow out of even when we're adults. We want to have our feelings acknowledged and our experiences reflected. So art can do that. Art does that. That's like the purpose of it is to kind of capture stories, represent the human condition and show it back to us. And I think it's the greatest gift. I do think it saves lives and I do think it gets you to kind of question who you are, what you want, what conversations are you a part of, what conversations do you want to be part of, you know, what do you want from your life? And I think art makes way for you to really interrogate that in a way that other industries don't power. Yeah. (laughs) I'm very passionate about that.
1: (laughs) In an earlier episode of Dream Boldly, we spoke to members of the Creative Brisbane lab, which is a group of senior business leaders from both the creative and the corporate sectors who are bound by a common goal, which is to strengthen the relationships between the corporate sector and the creative industries here in Brisbane. How important is that partnership between corporate and creative?
2: Again, I think it's critical I think in this country, art is still seen as quite niche and still seen as something that can only matter to certain people. I feel like that there's an elitism that sits around art and art making and I would love to be a part of stripping away that myth because I think that everyone has the capacity to be creative and and everyone has the capacity and we are all storytellers by nature. And I actually think that the way to get around that, I mean, we can bang our drum in the creative industries as loud as we want about why we matter and all of that, but I don't think anything will change unless other industries come in as well and advocate for us too. And I think that there's great kind of exchange that can happen when the corporate and the for-profit sector interact with the arts because we have some of the the greatest best practice models going and there's a lot that can be borrowed from what we're doing and they can implement that in their sector and vice versa too. There's some incredible frameworks that are happening in health that I think we're seeing start to be transposed into other industries too. I just frankly think we need as many allies as we can get so that we can stay around for the next hundred years. <laughs>
1: Exactly. Finally, Courtney, in the spirit of the Dream Boldly podcast, what are your hopes and aspirations for Brisbane more broadly?
2: I love Brisbane so much. It has given me so much as a person, um, you know, and, and now that I'm back, you know, it's, um, it's the place where I'm now raising my family and I, I really value and treasure everything that Brisbane has. And I think going forward, um, I'm excited to be a part of the future of Brisbane, where all communities feel reflected, welcomed, um, taken into account and accommodated for. And um, I think we're well on our way. I think the arts plays a huge part in making that happen. Um, And I I really feel like this city is teeming with a cohesiveness that feels fresh and new and exciting and, and hopeful.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Dream Boldly. This podcast is brought to you by the Committee for Brisbane in association with Aruga. The Committee for Brisbane is an independent, not-for-profit organisation whose vision is for Greater Brisbane to be the world's most livable place. To find out more, please visit committeeforbrisbane.org.au. Please remember to rate and share the show. See you next time.